This morning, we'll be reading God's word from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Romans 5, 6 through 11, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is indeed God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word. Hear it this morning. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. May he bless the reading and the hearing of it this morning. Amen. Would you pray with me as we ask for the Lord's blessing on his word? Gracious Heavenly Father, Triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this day that you've given us, this Lord's Day, this Christian Sabbath. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. We thank you that it is unchanging, that it is true, that it is trustworthy, that in it we have everything we need for life and for godliness. Lord, we pray now as we hear it read to us, preached to us, Father, would you grant your people eyes to see, would you give us ears to hear? Would you soften even the stoniest and rockiest of hearts to make them able to receive the word of God as it is preached? Father, we pray that through the preaching of your word and everything else that we do here this morning, would you glorify yourself and would you build up your people? We pray it all in Christ's name and for his kingdom. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, what I want to speak to you this morning about is nothing other than the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ for the lost, the gospel of Jesus Christ for believers. In particular, for us as a church, as, as a body, as Christ's people who have already been united with him, it's important that we don't get to a point that we think we've moved on past the gospel. The gospel is still necessary. Whether you've been a Christian five years or 50, the gospel is still necessary. It's still good. It's still something we need to be reminded of. In particular, when it comes to the assurance of our salvation, the gospel is where we should turn. Assurance of our salvation is one of the greatest gifts that God has given his people. One of the greatest reasons we have to be thankful to the Lord if you, like myself, like most of us, have ever had seasons in your life where you've doubted, where you've lacked assurance, you know this to be the truth. If you, like myself, have any friends or companions, know any Mormons or, or Muslims, you know how unlike those religions that in our faith God has given us assurance of our salvation. And for it, we should be thankful our Westminster Confession of Faith tells us in chapter 18 that we may in this life be certainly assured. We may in this life be certainly assured that we are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make us ashamed. And hear this. 
Our confession continues and says here in chapter 18 that this certainty is not bare conjectural and probable persuasion. It's not grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. This is what God has given us. Not only has he saved us in and through the gospel, but in the day-to-day walks of our Christian lives, we have assurance. We have assurance of our faith because of the gospel. This morning, we're going to look in the text at hand at three reasons, three reasons that you and I, Christians, should have assurance of our final salvation. And I want you to notice, I want you to notice that in every one of these three points, that none of the reasons, not a one of them, have anything to do with you or me, but that all of them have everything to do with our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you, Christian, you, brother and sister, you can have assurance of your final standing before the Lord for three reasons. Because Jesus died for you when you were weak. Jesus died for you when you were ungodly. And Jesus died for you when you were an enemy. He died for you when you were weak, when you were ungodly, and when you were his enemy. And so first, look with me at verse 6. We'll see here that you can have assurance of your final salvation because Jesus died for you when you were weak. That's what Paul tells us in verse 6. Christ died for the Christian while they were weak, when we were helpless, without strength, when we had no hope of saving ourselves. Our condition could not have been worse if we had tried. Left to ourselves, we would have remained in that desperate and depraved state. But this is when precisely that Christ died for you, when your manner was most desperate. Look at what Paul tells us in the second part of verse 6. He says that Christ died for you and me at the right time. Well, Paul, what makes it at the right time? What makes it at the right time that Christ died for us? It was our desperate condition. Our desperate state is what makes what our Savior did so perfectly timed. And I want us to hear this clearly this morning, brothers and sisters, that Christ did not wait. Christ did not wait for us to pick ourselves up from the dirt and the mire, as if that were ever going to be a possibility. But he saved us when we were weak, completely incapable, without hope. And this is not a concept that's new to the apostle. Paul is not being innovative here. If you were to simply do a quick survey, just flip through the Old Testament, just about anywhere you could turn in the Old Testament in God's word, you would find this story over and over and over again, that this is how the Lord has always operated. We don't have time to consider the entirety of what the Old Testament has to say about it this morning, but we do have time to consider a couple passages. Consider with me Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, there we find the Lord reducing Gideon's mighty army down from 30,000 down to only 300 men. And I'm sure you remember the story, you're familiar with it, it's one we grew up with in VBS and summer camp. God instructed Gideon to take his men down to the water and stand back and observe. The Lord told him, observe how the men drink. And you'll have some of the men who reach down and have the good God-given common sense to get a cup or a pot or some form of a vessel, at a bare minimum, maybe their hands uh, to scoop up the water uh, to drink it. But you'll also observe that some of the men, when they go down to the water, they'll get down on their hands and knees, they'll stick their face in the creek, and they'll drink it like a dog. And the Lord tells Gideon, guess which men I want to fight for you. Well, you and I, being good common sense people, would say, well, at bare minimum, the ones that have the common sense to use a pot or a cup, right? But those aren't the men the Lord wanted to fight for Gideon. The Lord wanted Gideon to pick 
the 300 who would lap the water with their tongues like a dumb animal. Why? Why would God do this? This makes no sense. He's not picking out 300 Spartans for Gideon. He's picking the, the, fullest, the, the most foolish of the men, the men that lack any good and decent common sense, the men that I would be hesitant to have fighting next to me in battle. Why would the Lord do this? Brothers and sisters, it was so that he would receive more glory. Consider also Deuteronomy 32. There we find the Lord telling Israel that he would vindicate his people when? When would the Lord vindicate his people? When he sees that their power is gone, is what the text tells us. Know this, church, that God receives the most glory in this way. By magnifying his saving power, by saving the undesirable weakling. God saved us at the most opportune time when we were weak, when we were incapable, so that he and he alone would receive every last ounce of the glory. Jesus died for us when we were weak. He saved us, not when we were strong. And this really only makes sense. If you were to go to a physician, a doctor sick with some illness, maybe the flu, maybe, maybe COVID, no doctor would tell you, come back when you're feeling better. He, he would be out of a job pretty fast, wouldn't he? No, that's the doctor's job is to see the weak, to take care of the weak, to tend to the weak and the sick. The doctor is there for sick people. His job is to heal sick people. When our great physician, Jesus Christ, found us and died for us and saved us, we didn't just have a spiritual cold, did we? No, when Jesus found us, when he died for us, when he saved us, we had terminal stage four spiritual cancer. God's word tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were not just sick in sin, but dead in sin. Dead in sin when Christ found us, when he died for us, when he saved us. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. That Jesus didn't come to die for the strong, but for the weak. And what's happened since then? I think that's really Paul's point in the text in each of these verses. The point is what has happened since then. In Acts 1.8, we're told that you have received power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So this church, this brother, sister, this is why you should have assurance of your final salvation. If Christ died for you when you were at your weakest, how could he not save you in the end now that you have been filled with the powerful indwelling of his Holy Spirit? Jesus died for you when you were weak. And we're told also in the text that Jesus died for you when you were ungodly. Look again with me at verse 6 and we'll read through verse 8. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So not only were we weak, not only were we helpless, but we stood opposed to him, unlike him in every conceivable way, and yet still he died for us. Now what exactly is Paul saying here when he makes this comparison between dying for a righteous person or a good person. If you're like me at first glance, you want us to go, well, isn't a good person and a righteous person the same thing? I mean, I, I would use those terms kind of interchangeably. They actually are a little bit different. There's some, there's some nuance in the Greek, but I, I won't bore you with it this morning. Paul's, Paul's main point is not who is a righteous person, who is a good person. His main point is that you and I weren't either. Brothers and sisters, you were neither good nor righteous. You were neither useful to God nor, nor standing in righteous ways at all. 
There are certain people and there are certain situations in which we can wrap our minds around someone laying their life down for another. A secret service member jumping in the way and taking a bullet for the president. We can understand that that's his job. A mother saving her child, jumping in front to push them out of a car, some situation like that. We can understand situations where one might lay their life down for another. Paul's point here, though, is in verse 8, that what makes no sense at all, what makes no sense at all, what we should struggle to wrap our minds around is this, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Consider this, that not only were we unable to save ourselves, not only were we ungodly, but we fell short of every single one of his standards. We were neither morally good nor useful to him in any way, yet still our Savior died in our place. We had no merit. We had no merit. We had no service that we could offer him that he couldn't provide. Yet Christ still died for us, his church, his people, his bride. And that is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that he didn't die for the godly or for the good, but for the ungodly. We're told in the Bible in Romans 3 that there are none who are good, no, not one. In Ecclesiastes 7.20 that, that surely, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Jesus died not for the godly, not for the good, but for the ungodly, for the sinners. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And again, what has happened to you since then, brothers and sisters? What has happened to you since Christ came into your life, filled you with his spirit, saved you and made you new? What has happened since then? Christ died for us when we were ungodly and stained, but now you and I can sing along with the prophet Isaiah when he writes in Isaiah 61.10 that I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Even as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Brothers and sisters, if Christ died for you when you were ungodly, when you were stained, when you stood opposed, how could he not save you in the end now that by his spirit and his grace he has made you blameless, godly, pure by the blood of his son. Christ died for us when we were weak. He died for us when we were ungodly. And praise be to the Lord that he died for us when we were his enemies. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. Paul there writes, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you remember those old Billy Mays commercials, this is kind of what Paul is doing at this point. He's already given us so much. Christ died for you when you were weak. He died for you when you were ungodly. But it's as though Paul is standing there saying, but wait, there's more. He also died for you when you were his enemy. You see, so far with what the apostle has given us, I think there might be a temptation, a possibility for us to come away with a skewed picture of what our predicament truly was. We've been told that we were weak. We've been told that we were ungodly. But there may be a tendency, if that's all that we knew of the picture, 
For us to come away thinking and feeling and maybe even looking like the victims here. There's indeed some today who would tell you that our main predicament, the only reason that Christ came, there are some who would tell you that the only reason that Christ came was to bring healing to the broken. They would say it's not that we deserve God's wrath. It's not that we stood under the fear of his wrath. No, rather it's merely that we were broken and needed Christ to put the pieces back together. There are folks who would say that the cross wasn't about satisfying the demands of God's wrath and justice on sin, but only and merely about bringing healing to the broken. And we pause there and we recognize, right, that that's a half-truth. That's a half-truth. That, that's part of the story. Absolutely. Praise be to God that Christ came to bring healing to the broken. Praise be to God. Absolutely, he brings healing to the broken. But that's a half-truth. That's a half-truth, that's half of the story. And maybe your parents used to tell you the way mine used to tell me, a half-truth is a whole lie. We need to understand the full picture here. This is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. We weren't just weak and ungodly, we were enemies. We were enemies. Maybe some of y'all have seen the Don Disliquid commercial with the baby duck. It's been around for, for decades now. Uh, the first time I saw it, I was probably in high school, and I thought maybe that this illustration wouldn't be relevant anymore, except for probably not a month or two ago, was, was trying to find something on Hulu or one of those streaming services to watch, and it popped up as a commercial again. So uh, Dawn has uh, gotten its use out of this commercial. If you haven't seen it, let, let me paint the picture for you. The commercial opens up uh, to, the, to the cutest Sweetest little yellow baby duckling you've ever seen in your life, but it's struggling. It's, it's struggling in the midst of an oil spill, suffocating, flailing about. You know, it pulls at your heartstrings. Poor little thing. It didn't put itself in this situation. And then in the next scene, men reach down with a gloved hand and pick the duck up. And it cuts to a sink where the men are washing the duckling off with some dish soap. Dawn, of course, right? That's the point. Uh, even Dawn can even clean the oil off the duck. That's the point of the commercial. But it, it cleans the little guy right up. It cleans him right up. He's looking good as new at the end of it. Well, brothers and sisters, and hear me clearly now, that was not our situation. We oftentimes see ourselves as maybe the victim in the story. But Paul is making clear here that not only were we weak, not only were we ungodly, we stood opposed to the Lord our God. We were not just dirty ducklings covered in the oil stains of sin that needed to be cleaned up by the dawn dish liquid of Christ's blood. That was not the full story. We weren't just weak. We weren't just ungodly. We were his enemies. And it's when we were right in the middle of our cosmic treason that Christ died for us. That is the gospel. That is the good news that Jesus did not die for his allies and his friends, but for his enemies. And if that were not reason enough for our thanksgiving and praise and worship and thanks, Paul tells us beginning in verse 9 that Christ's death has actually done two things for you and for me. It has justified us, but it has also reconciled us. Christ's death justified you, Paul tells us as much. He says there that we have now been justified by his blood. And this is great. This, this would be cause enough, cause alone for us to come here week after week and give praise to the Lord our God. Paul is saying that in the cosmic courtroom of God, he has banged his gavel and declared you the sinner righteous. 
You, the sinner, have been acquitted of all charges. You now stand. You now stand being declared over you, having declared over you the very righteousness of the Son of God. And this is great, but as great as justification is, Paul continues and speaks to us of reconciliation. While justification is a legal term, bringing to mind a courtroom in which the judge acquits the sinner, reconciliation is close, it's personal, it's relational. To reconcile is literally to bring together two estranged parties. Two people that had nothing in common. Two people who were at each other's throats. Now now in reconciliation, they're brought together. And specifically in this context, it's the restoration of God's favor to sinful man. And this is not common language in the religious realm. This is not common at all. This is one of the areas where we as Christians stand unique. Most religions could not fathom of an area where it would be appropriate to use such personal, relational, familial language between deity and man, the immortal and the mortal, the creator and the creature. And this is one of the areas where Christianity stands unique. Not only has the judge of all things judicially declared believers in Christ righteous, but he has also restored you fully restored you fully in your proximity and relationship to your Father in heaven. Here is what Paul is saying. By Christ's death and shed blood, we are declared righteous. And by his life, we will be saved from God's final wrath. Paul is arguing that if Christ died for you when you were weak, when you were ungodly, when you were his enemy, but now he has justified you, but now he has reconciled you, then you should have certain hope You should have absolute unwavering confidence concerning your salvation. Paul in verses 9 through 11 really reiterates here what he's already said. He uses what we might call a a much more, a how much more argument. Paul is arguing that if Christ has already justified you, if he has already reconciled you when you stood as his enemy, why would you possibly think that he couldn't or wouldn't bring that salvation to an end now that he has made you righteous. It's a how much more argument. And it's not unique to Paul. The rabbis in his day and age would call this an argument of light and heavy. An argument of light and heavy. To give you an example, years ago, when my wife and I, we had been married for a little while, and I got accepted into RTS, and we decided that we wanted to move onto the campus where we could be a little bit closer And so we were getting all our furniture together, and thankfully my father-in-law, being the saint that he is, he came down with his, you know, 20-foot trailer and was helping us load up all the furniture, and it all got out of our house fine, and we we show up to this little townhome at RTS, uh, right over the line, technically still in Clinton, but RTS townhomes, and we show up with the trailer and open the door and immediately realize it is not going to be as easy getting this furniture in this apartment as it was getting it out of our house. As soon as we opened, the only door that there was any chance of this furniture fitting through, you come face to face, barely the door barely cleared a staircase uh, going, going in the hallway. And so we have all this furniture, these vanities, these dressers, these couches, and we're looking at the staircase going, how in the world are we going to maneuver it through here? And so my father-in-law, having done this sort of thing a few times, he had the good sense to say, let's start with the biggest piece of furniture first. We had this couch that is bigger than any couch I've ever seen, and it didn't disassemble. It was about seven and a half, if not eight feet long. Well, that wasn't the issue. The real issue was it was probably about five feet in depth. Now, now I'm not particularly tall, 
but I, I like to think I'm not really too short either. I'm a solid 5'11", if I'm wearing good shoes, six foot on a good day. Uh, but, but I'm a good average height. And when I sat on this couch, my feet dangled like a little child. I've never had a couch like it since, never had one before. It just enveloped you. And so he said, we need to get this piece of furniture in first. It took us over two hours. Over two hours, a crushed finger and lots of sanctification later, we finally got that couch in that apartment. And it turned out my father-in-law was right. We got everything else in that apartment faster than that one couch took us. We got the hard thing out of the way first. And so everything else was a breeze. It was a guarantee. If that couch got in, well, then surely the lamps and the dressers were going to get in. This is what Paul is trying to get across to us here about justification. You see, Paul reasons that if God has already done the heavy work, the hard work of justifying, if the Lord has already done this, how much more can he be hoped in to do the relatively light work of saving those whom he's already justified from the final judgment? Brothers and sisters, if Christ has already moved the heavy load of your sin by justifying you, then take heart and take hope in this, that the rest of your sanctification is a breeze for him. It's something that you can be certain of. So what do we do with this information? I think there's a few different applications of this depending on who you are and where you find yourself this morning. First, for those who have potentially came here this morning and fooled yourself into thinking that you're strong enough or good enough on your own. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you have no need of Jesus and his salvation and his gospel. You need to hear this clearly this morning that you will never, in and of yourself, be strong enough, be good enough. Your supposed good deeds will never balance the scales in your favor. We're told in God's word that even our best deeds, our best works, our best efforts are filthy rags before a holy God. Apart from Christ and His salvation and the indwelling of His Holy Spirit, all we're doing when we think we're building up good karma or tilting the scales in our favor, all we're doing is heaping up a bigger and nastier pile of filthy rags. We will never be strong enough. We will never be good enough on our own to enter heaven apart from Christ, apart from what He has done. So flee to Him. Run to Him. Trust in Him. Second, for those who would tell themselves, well, I hear you, preacher, and I want to get around to it. I'll get around to this Jesus stuff, this church stuff, this Christianity stuff, but I've got to get my life together first. You've got it completely backwards. You've got it completely backwards. What did we just hear in this text? Jesus died for the weak to make them strong. He died for the ungodly to make them holy. He died for his enemies to make them his family. So come to him now. Run to him now. Trust in him now. Praise be to God, brothers and sisters, that he tells us he wants us to come as we are. But he doesn't leave us that way. Third and finally, for my brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, those who have been reborn of his Holy Spirit, take away from this that you should trust in him, rejoice in him, and that we should share all about him to the world. Trust in him and never doubt. 
Why would we doubt if he died for us when we were weak and ungodly and an enemy, yet now by his spirit has made us strong and holy and brought us into his family? Why would you think for half a second that he wouldn't stick it out with you until the end? Trust in him. And that means not in yourself. He's the one who began the race. And he will be the one who finishes it. He who began the work in you will bring it to completion. We have less reason than anyone to ever be arrogant or prideful or haughty. Our salvation has been all of him and nothing of us. To quote one brother, the only thing that we contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing that we brought to the table and yet still he died for us. Trust in him and rejoice as we enter into this week of of thanksgiving. Be thankful for this. What a great and gracious Savior we have. Sing his praises. Be filled with the joy, the type of joy that can't be taken away or marred by circumstance, that Jesus would die for a wretch like me. Trust in him, rejoice, and go and share it with the world around you. This gospel is for everyone. This good news is for everyone. It's simply too good to keep to ourselves. As the apostle said in Acts, how can we but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters, that Jesus died for you when you were weak, ungodly, and an enemy. And if you have trusted in this, trusted in him, he has made you by his grace strong and holy and brought you into his family. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you join me now as we go to the Lord in prayer? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that that you made a plan to redeem a people for yourselves. And that everything that has transpired throughout human history that you have worked it and that you have ordained it and that you have caused it to be as such that it would lead to the salvation of your people and the glory of your great name. Father, we thank you that when we're weak, you make us strong. That though we were sinners who stood condemned, that you saved us, redeemed us, reconciled us, that you've pulled us up a seat at the table, that you've clothed us in robes of righteousness. Father, I pray for myself as I also pray for each of these brothers and sisters here this morning. Would you, through this word that we've heard this morning, would you fuel us? Would you strengthen us? Would you encourage and edify us in the week to come? Father, I pray for any who might be here this morning, any of your children, any of your people who are struggling with the assurance of their salvation, would you help them to hope in this? Would you remind them of this? Would you place this on their hearts so that they would be strengthened and encouraged? Father, we pray it all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.